You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go. I'm Dr. Shane. A big thank you to the team from Radiotherapy for giving such uh, nice comments about us, and I share a thought with them. Self-praise is no praise. But we love you, doctors. You're great. Um, in the studio with me is Dr. Jen. How are you, madam? Morning, Dr. Shane. I'm a little bit husky this morning. I know. You know. What's it's going good. on? Well, I don't know. Everyone's just, been sick. Everyone's sick. It's yeah, a good my, radio voice, though, don't you think? I, I like it. Yeah, mm, people like it. Now, uh, we have had a bit of an incident, folks. Uh, during the week, I received an email from Dr. Lauren yet again requesting a doubling of her pay. I oh, tried I to. it was ex- a triple. Well, you know, I tried to explain to her she's a volunteer, but she doesn't get it. <laughs> So, um, anyway, we are in dispute. So, uh, Dr. Jen, you were good enough to bring in your group of science communication students from the University of Melbourne to run the show for us today. And let me tell you, they are raring to go. I have some awesome students in the room who have been thinking a lot about how you communicate science effectively, and that's what this show is all about, isn't it? We like to train scientists or help scientists learn how to talk about their stuff. Indeed we do. And the well, if, I'm not sure if people know this, but the station does have an education licence, so it's part of our business, so we're doing it today. But if you find that they're not up to par... You've got Dr. Jen to blame because they're her <laughs> students. And if you find they are up to par, well, we'll just say bye-bye, Dr. Lauren. We'll keep them. What do you reckon? Oh, great plan. Now, in the studio, we have Trish. Good morning. Hiya. And Josh. Morning. Great to be here. Amy. Good morning. And Sakib. G'day. How are we? Try that again, Sakib. Right into the mic, buddy. No. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Who says you can't train the Sakib? You, you can. <laughs> Everyone I've met has said the same thing. Yeah, to me. indeed. Now we're going to do our usual show, folks. Where we've got some news, we've got some amazing science uh, stories that we're going to be doing after our first music break. It's going to be jam packed, so we're going to get going with Trish and your news for this week. So something that's made a bit of a splash in the international headlines has been China admitting that it's lost control of its space station Tiangong One. So Tiangong One was China's first prototype space station and it was successful it's out there in space and they put it up there so they could practice space docking so this is an important skill when you want to participate in the international space station or participate make your own space station i suppose mm-hmm. and um it's pretty cool because there's only three countries that have their own space station the u.s russia and china and of course the u.s and russia have that massive history of space and China's base program in contrast it's in its infancy so it's very impressive that they've even accomplished something like this but so what's happened (laughs) is that Tiangong One they've lost connection and actually don't really know where it is and the Chinese space agency has predicted that it's going to re-enter Earth's atmosphere in 2017 and not a controlled way. That doesn't sound good. No, but you don't have to really worry. This isn't the first time that we have space debris flying back into Earth. Um, usually, though, people control and make a space station. If it's to re-enter Earth, they usually depend on it falling apart in the atmosphere and burning up. Tiangong One might not do that. That's the only issue. But the other thing is also we only occupy 29 percent of the Earth's surface. So the odds of it hitting 
a particular mm. person is it's very very low. Yeah. So you'd have to be really unlucky. To yeah, get that. you do. You have to be Extremely that guy unlucky. who got hit by lightning four times or whatever. Like he'd be looking out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'd watch yeah. out if it was you. Yeah. If, if, if he'd also been hit by one of the space shuttle tiles years back and struck four times by lightning, if I was him, I'd just go underground I, now. I, I would too. It's yeah. yeah. Life isn't looking out for you for that man. Yeah. So what? So what are they doing? Are they trying to find it or it's? Um, I Just don't luck. really know what's going what they're trying to do. I think the Chinese Space Agency, they, they didn't even admit that they lost control of this mm. until very, very recently. And people had speculated that they had lost this ages okay. ago. So they're a little bit secretive about this. They've only really told people that it's going to hit us in 2017. And... They don't really know where it's going to hit, and if they did, people were speculating once again it might only be eight hours before it hits us. But Yeah, but this really, I mean, the highlight is just that it's difficult. Space travel is difficult. I mean, with the whole explosion with the SpaceX company in um, Cape Canaveral in America, it just highlights that it's not Mm. down pat. We haven't got this down pat. It's still a... It's still a bit difficult. Yeah. And yeah. bravo to China for getting their second space station yeah, up. And I definitely. mean, they're doing well. This was the unmanned version, so they're, they're doing well yeah. either way. I think it's, um, it's great to have another nation, you know, entering the space game. And who knows? They may just sneak in a win yeah, to Mars. Yeah, definitely. You never know. You never know. Josh, what do you got for us? So, tardigrades, uh, also known as water bears or moss piglets, they're these microscopic aquatic animals. And what's really interesting about them is when they dehydrate, they shrivel up into a tiny ball and when in this state uh, they're actually extremely tolerant and resistant to extreme physical environments so these include high levels of radiation uh, extremely high temperatures up to 100 degrees celsius almost and as low as minus 270 so a group of researchers in japan for the past eight years they've been studying the genetics of one of the most tolerant species of tardigrade and they've discovered this protein in that when they dehydrate, this protein essentially wraps itself around their DNA like a blanket and protects them from these extreme physical environments, almost like a suit of armour. So what they've done is they've been able to cultivate human cells in a laboratory to be able to produce this same protein, which they've labelled DSUP, sending damage suppressor. And they've found that when exposing these human cells to uh, damaging levels of X-ray radiation, they've been able to withstand the radiation much more significantly than normal human cells. Mm. So this has a lot of implications for the future of medical science. So uh, hopefully one day we could maybe learn to better protect human cells and tissue being transplanted, such as skin grafts, uh, possibly increase the resistance of cancer patients to radiation therapies, or even produce uh, crops that are much more resilient to levels of radiation that you would expect to see in Mars. So maybe that one day we could even cultivate uh, plants on another planet. So it's really the tip of the iceberg and it's, it's all coming from these tiny little animals that most of us haven't even seen before. So, yeah, it's very interesting. It's super cool. I, and the thing I like is just how... Why would they have evolved this mechanism? You know, that's the fascinating part to it, me. You know, what, what environment were they exposed to that said, you need to evolve this protein to protect yourself in this way? Well, there's a lot of thoughts as to what it could be. So previously there was the hypothesis that they were able to exchange genes from other organisms. But that was in the case that their DNA wasn't actually being essentially protected by this protein. Mm. Instead, it was repairing itself afterwards. And in that process, they were getting genes. But now looking at that, the, the genes actually protect and, and gene transfer can't happen from other animals or, or is less likely. Um, they, they are found in a range of extreme environments from 
uh, mosses in your local backyard to even glaciers in Antarctica. And generally when on these mosses that dry out, they need to be able to withstand the dehydration because mm, that has right. a significant effect on their DNA. So that could be one of the reasons mm. why. Cool stuff. Well, we'll have Iron Man suits before the end of the month. Yes, Never indeed. <laughs> Next up, Amy, what do you got for us? Yeah, I've got a little bit of doom and gloom for us, actually. Ooh. Yeah, so everybody knows that smoking is bad for you. I think that's kind of gotten through to just about everybody by now. Um, what we have recently discovered, however, is that smoking actually changes your DNA. And these changes can actually last for anywhere up to 30 years. So essentially what they did is they uh, went and looked at 16,000 different blood samples from people that have been taking part of smoking studies over many years and found that uh, smoking actually causes changes to the methylation on DNA. So it's essentially not the DNA itself, but it, the methylation is sort of what sits around it and switches a gene on or off. And they found that smoking was actually impacting on about 7,000 different genes, which mm. is about a full third of our genome. So that's really, really crazy. That's a lot. That's a lot. <laughs> it's a serious amount. And um, the problem is that a lot of these genes that they're affecting are things that have to do with your typical smoker's diseases, so heart and lung problems, etc. And unfortunately, when you quit smoking, as much as your body resets and repairs itself and most of your things do go back to pretty normal within a few years, these changes can last. So they found that most of it will repair itself by about five years after you've quit smoking completely. But some of these genes do actually cha stay changed, stay altered for up to 30 years, including one that actually impacts on lymphoma. Mm. So they're thinking that it might be that a lot of these uh, smokers-related diseases that we don't quite know how they've been happening, it could be to do with these gene changes mm. and the change of the methylation. It's interesting. I mean, you would hope if we know which genes are affected, we could switch them back to where they need to be in time, but 7,000. 7,000. I mean, a full third of your genome. Ooh, it's a, lot a of work. serious chunk, yeah. yeah, yeah. So mm. I guess the best uh, advice is don't start smoking, but if you yeah. do, the quicker you stop, the better. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Good advice. Is that everybody? No, second, but we forgot you. <laughs> We've got more news. What have you got? Yeah, i got something coming out of marine biology this week, specifically regarding whales, everyone's favourite marine animal. So we know that the very largest whales, the baleen whales, they're filter feeders, right? Mm. We know that they eat food, really small food items, things like small fish or microscopic organisms like plankton or krill. And we know that the, their, food, their feeding mechanism is really pretty basic. They just swim towards a group of food, open their mouth and swallow whatever's there, right? Sounds good. But we've never really understood the specific uh, kinematic aspect of that. So, you know, when they open their mouths, the timing of it all, the speed that they're traveling at, uh, we've never really understood that. So some researchers tried to rectify that by basically strapping some cameras and 3D accelerometers to a bunch of whales all around the world, right? I thought that was pretty cool. What they found was really interesting. They found that these whales will actually change or mediate their, uh, their feeding behavior depending on what kind of prey they're after. Take humpback whales, for example. They'll eat small fish as well as krill, yeah? When they go after krill, what they have to worry about is just getting as much krill as they can in one big gulp because krill are pretty small, they're pretty um, slow-moving, they're not very agile, they're not going to go anywhere anytime soon. So they just they swim pretty quickly, they open their mouths pretty late and just get as much food in, the, in their one big gulp as they can, right? Think about small fish, however. Small fish are a bit bigger, obviously, but they're also, more importantly, more agile and a bit quicker. So they can, you know, undergo evasive manoeuvres trying to avoid this giant black thing coming at them. Um, 
So these whales, these humpback whales, they'll actually change their feeding behavior. They'll slow down a bit. They won't go as quickly. They'll open their mouths slightly later, slightly earlier as well, sorry. And what that means is they can actually correct themselves for the movement that these fish are going to make. Now, I thought that was pretty cool because it shows that these whales aren't just, you know, just blindly swimming at a mass of food, an undiscernible mass of food. They're actually going after something. They recognize what they're going after and then they change their behavior as a result. I actually didn't pick that story because I thought it was, you know, at the forefront of scientific breakthrough knowledge or anything, but I thought it was cool that some scientists probably sat together in a room over a few beers and thought, hey, let's strap a bunch of cameras to a whale and see what we can find out. <laughs> and then a funding body would have looked at that and said, you know what, great idea, here's some money, go nuts. Yeah. Meanwhile, I'm sat here, it took me eight months to get a bloody computer for my research. I'm a bit sour, I'll be honest with you. Well, I think it's, it's interesting, though, because we, um, I've always said, you know, we, we know nowhere near nothing about what's in the ocean compared to what's on the land. I mean, our knowledge of how these things work is really limited. And so even I just, I've always, you know, it's interesting how they change their behavior because I'm like, you know, you see this big thing coming at you, you're a fish, why don't you get out of the way? Mm. Yeah, but if they, if they are modifying their speed and so forth and, uh, you know, specifically to do that hunt prey scenario so that it works well, then, yeah, makes sense. Exactly. Yeah. It must suck to be a fish. Well, you want to be a big fish, <laughs> preferably a shark, not a fish. Uh, we're going to take a short break. Uh, the new team that uh, has brought in, we brought in because of Dr. Lauren's uh, issues with her pay. Um, we'll be back in just a moment. We're going to talk about some far more detailed science. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo on Three Triple R. Three Triple R. Yeah, there it is. I got beaten up during the break because I said sharks weren't fish. <laughs> They're sharks. But apparently there's still a bar type of fish. They're cartilaginous fish. Oh, bloody hell. I'm a physicist. I know the difference between a planet and a moon. <laughs> and uh, I know the run from a shark, well, swim, <laughs> and run towards a fish. <laughs> anyway, uh, now our first uh, story segment for today is going to be done by Josh. What are we talking about, Josh? So I'm going to be talking about uses of virtual reality in medical science. So mm-hmm. virtual reality is, is a form of technology I've been interested in most of my life and I've sort of felt like it's been just out of reach until recently because now we're seeing all these consumer virtual reality headsets coming out. So, you know, the HTC Vive, Oculus Rift, um, you know, even phone uh, sort of virtual reality kits we're seeing. But what's really great about this is is since these products are sort of coming on the market, I'm seeing a lot of studies lately uh, adopting these uh, headsets and actually incorporate the, or incorporating it into their own studies. So there are two particular areas I'd like to talk about. One specifically is uh, research involving uh, assisting paraplegic people to walk again uh, with an exoskeleton, of course. So what the study involved was it was a brain-machine interface these research creators. So on one end, these uh, patients, they had a stretchy cap on their head and it could read their brain signals and send it to a computer. And on the other end, they had a virtual reality headset and when looking through it, they could see a first-person view from an avatar. So it's essentially like looking through their own eyes but you mm. know, in a different environment. And by thinking of walking, they were able to uh, learn to make the actual avatar in the virtual reality headset walk as well. Hmm. Uh, so from the signals that were being captured by the stretchy cat. Now, the aim of that, of that was to eventually transition into an exoskeleton that was suited onto these people. 
And instead of making the avatar through the virtual reality headset walk, they were actually able to make the exoskeleton walk uh, just from their thoughts that were being captured. Did, did the, Josh, did the research show that you know, the virtual reality helped that process? Because I, I can imagine I can do this thing without the virtual reality on, but does seeing me having legs, yeah. if, if, for example, that's my, um, what we're trying to, to change, does seeing me walking with legs help me create the right brain signals needed to drive an exoskeleton or, or can I just do that without the virtual reality? Well, the thing is they possibly could, but it is designed as a form of brain training mm-hmm. and that was probably the most efficient way to be able to replicate okay. that type of training. So what they then did, so they transitioned to an exoskeleton and it was very successful. But this was designed as just a form of study to create uh, assistive technology for these people. But the actual findings, the surprising findings that they discovered from this research was by the end of it, uh, all of the patients, the eight patients, actually gained some form of muscle uh, controls and, and sensations of pain and touch below the sides of their injury. Now, obviously, there were a lot of things that happened throughout this study, you know, as well as the virtual reality training, they did a lot of physical training, etc. But... What's really great about this is this is an incremental step in sort of understanding how, you know, the uh, we are wired and, and what they thought, you know, why that they were gaining some of these sensations was mm. because uh, at the site of the injury, there were still likely some nerve cells that hadn't been damaged. And this, this essential brain training with this uh, interface actually rekindled the activity of those cells. Uh, so one lady even was able to feel uh, contractions occur during a pregnancy afterwards. Wow. So it went from being just developing technology that was just designed to assist people. She was virtually to, pregnant? Virtually pregnant, yeah. <laughs> Immaculate conception. No pun intended. <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting concept. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's sort of, uh, you know, opened up the, an area of study into mm. going from assistive to a form of recovery. Yeah. So, I mean, like I said, there's a lot of factors involved in this, but it's a, it's a great step forward. Hmm. I was going to say, after being paraplegic and having no sensation in your lower body whatsoever, for the first sensation to be childbirth contractions, that's just really unfortunate. <laughs> <laughs> it's weird. It's weird. It is very weird. Hmm. But uh, then on the other spectrum of this technology, in Australia, actually, they've recently been... Uh, looking at patients who have had strokes. And what they've done is they've been taking uh, various scans from these patients, including MRIs, uh, CT scans, and they've been developing a 3D virtual reality environment of that site of the injury of the patients and then allowing these patients to explore their own body from within using this headset. So they've had to adjust the environment to allow for lighting and, and movement throughout the, the actual, you know, the, the blood vessels, et cetera, while maintaining the integrity of the data. But what's really great about this is it's, I think we're all very visual learners and it allows the patients to not just learn about, you know, how their stroke or, you know, uh, condition occurred, but motivate them essentially to, you know, rehabilitate even further and, and prevent, you know, uh, further strokes from happening. But this extends further into university classrooms. You know, they could incorporate this this style of, you know, uh, creating virtual environments of the human body with data 
and actually, you know, teaching university students about surgical procedures, you know, diseases that occur, how drugs uh, essentially make their way to cells in the body, such as cancer cells, you know, and how they work. So I think this is, you know, for those who aren't such a fan of theoretical learning, I think this is a great way to complement it and, you know, it could really advance the way we we learn in in such Mm. environments. Yeah, I think it goes beyond the... Uh, we've always thought about these things as being they're often driven by the gaming industry which yep. is which is fabulous yep. but the real applications the real interest is when it moves into these other industries as well and that's that's where we'll find i mean educate i mean imagine education where everyone in the theater just whacks on their vr so that they can see what the solar system actually looks like as you fly through it in 3d and stuff like that i mean they just completely change the way we teach exactly and uh and then you know if you're bored during the lecture you could just go to the beach very much so. <laughs> exactly. It's right. sort of like going on a holiday, but in your own body. Or, yeah. yeah, you know, I mean, I, 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 it sort of would make um, the use of mobile phones in lectures seem light Very uh, much by so. comparison. <laughs> Thank you, Josh. Great stuff. Um, let's see where this technology goes, because I think um, I actually uh, may have picked up a catalogue from a certain electronic supplier during the week, and I noticed for about 400 bucks you can buy these things right now. Yep. So I'm not sure what you get with that. Maybe just the beach, but, um, you yeah, know, it could be interesting. <laughs> now... Uh, Amy, you're up next. What do you got for us? Yeah, so this one will seem like a little bit of a doom and gloom again to start with, but hopefully I can change your mind by the end of it. I'm actually talking about the uh, global human population and population rise. So basically, if you were a person alive, sort of at the dawn of time, dawn of civilization about 10,000 years ago, you would have been one of only one million people in the entire world. That's, I mean, what, a quarter of Melbourne's population spread mm. out over the entire globe. The good old days. The good old days. <laughs> uh, you know, had Polio. to contend back in your day. Yeah. Cave bears, yeah. I'm not that old. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so we were one million people about 10,000 years ago, and over the next nine and a half thousand years, uh, that population slowly, slowly, steadily rose. A couple of dips with a couple of plagues and things in the middle. But basically, it took about nine and a half thousand years for us us to reach the first billion. And that happened Mm. in the early 1800s. So by the early 1800s, we'd reached one billion. And then things went crazy. The Industrial Revolution happened, and with the Industrial Revolution, we got more food. Uh, Agricultural processes were greatly increased, so we had machines working for us now. We had chemical fertilizers. We also had a bunch of health care advances, so vaccines and, of course, antibiotics like penicillins. Basically, people stopped dying as much as they Mm. used to. And the result of that was when people stopped dying, the population started increasing. So from being about 1 billion in the 1800s, by the 1930s, we doubled it to 2. By the 1970s, we doubled again to 4 billion. And this morning, I checked the world population clock, which is a really neat thing online. And we are sitting at 7.452 billion people. Ouch. Literally, by the time we started this program this morning, 173,000 and about 900 people had been born today across the world. Ouch again. You check that. It'll probably have gone up by now. (laughs) So essentially what we're seeing is this trend, much like any climate change graph you've ever seen, where it's gone very, 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 very slowly and spike. Mm. And that spike is really terrifying if you look at it. I mean, think of it like an island with a bunch of rabbits on it. You know, the rabbits are breeding to madness, and eventually we're going to eat every last blade of grass. And that's really scary. Mm. 
However, oh, we're, we're the rabbits, by the way, people. Yes, we're not. We're not the blades not of grass. Clear. We're not the grass. We're the rabbits. <laughs> However, as much as this sounds terrifying. <laughs> The latest predictions to do with population change and population rise are actually looking much, much better than we would think. So the UN and a few other uh, bureaus and things do keep track of this, but the United Nations is the main one. The United Nations uh, keep track of population rise, and they're also predicting the population rise in the future. And what they've figured out is that by all their best estimates, we're actually about to plateau. So this mad spike that I've been talking about that's been happening since the 1800s is actually going to start slowing off and we're going to actually stabilize our population, most likely by uh, 2050 or 2100. Mm. It's going to stabilize around (laughs) 9 or 10 billion people. That's a scary number, though, still. It is still a scary number and uh, it is... To do with the carrying capacity of the Earth, essentially, do we have enough resources to support 9 billion people? I mean, it's still a lot of people. Um, But for all intents and purposes, we think we do. So 9 billion people, I know it sounds like a terrifyingly large amount, but if you think about it, so I've got a couple of figures here. Essentially, uh, the richest 20% of the Earth are consuming about 86% of their resources. The poorest 20% are only consuming about 1.3% of the world's resources. Mm. Of all of the 40 poorest countries in the world, about 36 of them are actually exporting food to richer countries. So what the result of all of this is when you put two and two together, essentially we do have the resources to feed all of the people on Earth. We even have enough for the 9 billion, which we're essentially going to have to double our resources to feed that many. But we do have enough for it if we just deal with resource management and a proper distribution of resources as opposed to hoarding it for a certain few and letting the rest go hungry. It's hard to imagine, though, that the capacity of the world to actually sustainably produce that much food and and i mean principally in my concern is around the oceans uh-huh. I, I just don't see it i, I don't I, I mean maybe maybe someone's done a calculation somewhere that says sure we can feed 10 billion people no problem whatsoever but to me given the current level of environmental damage uh-huh. caused by feeding seven let's say four of them well uh-huh. four billion well I mean, if we're going to go from feeding 4 billion well to feeding 9 billion well, Mm -hmm. given we're currently ravaging our environment, it just, I don't know, it doesn't quite stack up to me. But see, that's the thing. So this is where it gets really interesting. There was a man uh, called Malthus who lived in the 1800s. Now, he made the first ever really solid prediction of population rise. And his conclusion was simply that by the early 1900s, we were going to run out of food. Hmm. Full stop. People would go starving. Populations would crash. It would be mental. And his data was all very sound. It was all very realistic predictions. The one thing he didn't account for was chemical fertilizer. And I mean, that's the thing we have to take into account these days is we don't know what the next transition and technology Mm. is going to be. Insects. Insects, precisely. Yeah. Now we're going to be eating insects. We and might very well be getting protein from insects. And, and manufactured meat. There you go. Do you know there's a, there's a company called, I think it's called Memphis Meats, 
um, it's a terrible in the US. Name. I know. <laughs> I always think they should have called it Elvis Meats. And just, but <laughs> but they, they, they make, um, they grow cells um, from, you know, they take, extract them from cows. They grow cells and they actually fabricate meat now. And I think they've cooked their first meatball or whatever and mm-hmm. it worked. And so it's, a, it's an interesting um, area of you know, potentially mean, could you fabricate this in, in an environmentally non-destructive way? Well, and precisely. And that's the thing. Technologies are progressing in an unpredictable way. Mm. But also with the meat, just in a way that could feed people, because I think those steaks cost an awful <laughs> amount of money, don't they? Oh, they do at the moment. But if you think of you know, all of these sorts of foods, mm. uh, when you produce two of them, they, they are high cost. When you produce 2,000 of them, you know, they, they do come down and the infrastructure has to be built around them. I mean, it's, it's like solar versus coal. You yeah. Know, I mean, you, you once you establish the industry, the, the costs come down. It's it's it's. I've, I've given up beef, personally. Mm. I'm 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 heading towards the vegetarian path, and I'll I'll drop fish and sharks a bit later. <laughs> <laughs> no, I won't eat sharks. Fishy, fishy sharks. I'm a, I'm a racist when it comes to fish. I won't eat shark. Mm. Yeah, I don't. I I will eat fish that's sustainable. Well, back to the beef though. That's really interesting. I actually read that we have cleared about a size of land to feed beef, specifically cows, mm. to raise cows about the size of South America. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah. It's incredible. Growing meat in labs is probably not a bad idea. Yeah. So, well, that's good stuff. Well, we've got to watch this space because um, exactly. there's a lot there's Who a knows lot what will happen? Yeah. And it's also a matter of, you know, if we have this population, it's okay for those of us in wealthy Western countries in particular to say, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, that's fine, that's fine. But we won't want that population growth to be in our countries. That's part of it. You look at the population in the US versus China or, or, or India or parts of South America. It's just chalk and cheese. Totally different. So, yeah. All right. We better take a break on that note so people can go and um, have a good vegetarian breakfast. Um, <laughs> it's good for the planet, folks. Uh, do it. And we'll be back in just a few minutes with some more uh, science for you. Here's some important announcements from the station. Three, triple, ah. Now, Trish, uh, you're covering one of my favourite topics, exoplanets. And given we just talked about how screwed our planet is with the population increases, although maybe we can figure it out. <laughs> maybe. Uh, you know, 10 billion to me just sounds, oh, um, where are we going to stick them? Yes, exactly. So um, this is something that I really like as well, and I don't get a chance to really talk about it a lot, but I love space. And... Whenever we find out about a new planet, I get so excited, whether it's because I can finally make a new friend and it's an extraterrestrial alien or we've got that <laughs> we've got that backup planet that we can dump all of our excess people on. That'd be great. Um, and we've had that recent news about Proxima B, which is that exoplanet. So exoplanet means a planet outside of our solar system. They found an exoplanet, Proxima B, near our planet, New our solar system, sorry, and it is sustainable. So we can actually put life on it. So what makes a planet habitable? So there's lots of criteria. We have to see if it's within the Goldilocks zone, whether it's too hot, too cold. We have to have it in a perfect medium. We have to make sure that there's water on it. We have to make sure that it has uh, an atmosphere so we don't just combust when we walk on it. And um, even deciding all these criteria we also have to just find an exoplanet, and that's surprisingly hard. So you might think, oh, you know, planets are pretty big. 
but the universe is also quite big. So when you look for a planet, it's like looking for a needle in a barn full of haystacks. Mm. And they're dark. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so, you're looking for something that's dark. Yeah, exactly. So you yeah. can, like, there's been cases where people can just they use a very, very powerful telescope and they've been able to see an exoplanet, but it relies on the exoplanet being very, very hot so we can actually see it or very, very, and very, very big so we can, yeah, so we have to, so we can be, sorry, so we can see it. Um, and unfortunately, not a lot of exoplanets can be found through these telescopes. Hmm. So essentially the only exoplanets we can see are the ones that are thoroughly impossible to inhabit, is what you're saying. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Yeah. So, um... There's two ways that astronomers use to try and look for these exoplanets. So the first one is something where they rely on something called radio velocity, and that's when you look for the wobble of stars. So when we learn about the solar planet, um, the solar system, we learn about our sun and all the planets that are orbiting around it. But we don't really learn that the sun moves as well, just a little bit. And that's what happens when a star is being orbited by planets. It moves a tiny bit. And we can detect this through looking at the type of light a star emits. So, you know when you're standing around and an ambulance is just driving towards you, not at you because that's bad, but towards <laughs> you, and it has that high-pitched siren noise, but then when it moves away from you, it's a low-pitched noise. This is the same sort of thing that happens with light that's moving towards you and away from you. It shifts blue when it's closer to you. It shifts red when it's further away from you. So astronomers look for this change in blue and red to look for a star that has planets orbiting around it. The only issue with this is that it relies on us being in a good angle because we can only see it a distance. We can only detect shifting movement if it's towards us and away from us. So there's another method that we can use, and this relies on not detecting the type of light emitted but the amount of light that's being emitted. So you're in a room at the corner of the room and there's a lamp in the middle of it and there's this annoying person who just keeps circling and dancing around it in a in an orbiting fashion when he moves in front of you and the light the light decreases in how much it emits because there's an asshole who just like <laughs> no, sorry <laughs> there's a there's some guy who's just distracting you and waving his arms around but then when he moves away the light shines into your eyes again and it's very very bright and also quite annoying this is what we rely on when we're looking for this uh, for the changing in light emission. So we've got the star, the planet, and us, or Kepler, which is the spacecraft that is detecting all these exoplanets. So Kepler can only see this star and the emission of light when a planet's moving into the perfect alignment. So with this method, it relies on that perfect alignment and, of course, the chances of it catching a planet and a star, mm. perfect alignments. It's very, very small. And, and that's going to be low. I mean, if you, if, you, if you think about something like the Earth that goes around the Earth once every, what is it, 360-something days? Yeah, around the sun. Yeah. Um, then, then that alignment would, assuming that it's perfect, so your plane is the same as the plane of this solar system when you're looking at it, then you need that alignment, you need to catch it once in the year when the when the planet goes past. Yeah, and so that yeah. so for some systems that's going to be really hard. Now if you're looking for Mercury which has a shorter uh, period of rotation then it'd be easier, but if you're looking for for Neptune or Pluto, good luck because yeah. you'd be waiting hundreds of years to see it see the curve. Well, with Pluto specifically, isn't it that it hasn't actually done a full revolution of the sun since we first discovered it? That's right. Yeah. So we yeah. literally wouldn't have seen Pluto yet yeah. if we yeah. were looking at it from another solar system. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a damn impressive planet. 
planet. Come on, it's got so much stuff going on. Yes, no, it's definitely very cool. Um, yeah, so exactly, we rely, the chances of catching an alignment plus actually finding it at that perfect moment, that's very hard. And, well, Kepler, it, it's hard, but Kepler still finds quite a lot of planets. It's, it's going out there and it's finding the most amount of planets a lot better than the other method that we have. But the only thing is that Kepler sometimes gets it wrong. Just like us people, Kepler sometimes says something's there, but it's not necessarily there. So even when Kepler confirms something, we have to point all our ground telescopes towards wherever Kepler thinks is an exoplanet and confirm whether or not it's there. But when we do have all that information, when Kepler says that there's a planet and we confirm that there's a planet and we found out enough information about it to know whether it's suitable, that's when we get really cool news like Proxima B. Like, mm. Yeah, so... Mm. But we learn that there's a lot we don't know about Proxima B, mm. in a sense. So, so there's probably a planet, probably in the habitable zone, where there could be liquid water if there's water on it. We don't know what the planet's doing in terms of its rotation. So it could be such that one side's always facing the sun and one side's not. That's exactly the case, actually. It's supposed mm. to be totally locked because it's so yeah. close to its sun. Yeah. And the solar flares <clears throat> would probably blast away the atmosphere. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it's a, it's a red dwarf, so it's a smaller star than ours, so it will be cooler. But, it, there, I mean, there's some interesting parameters there. It's, 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 this is hard science. It's really hard science. Here's a question. I'm not very good with space. I'd much rather look at the oceans personally. Um, how do you tell that it is in the Goldilocks zone? If we can only ever see that there's a planet there by looking at it when it's sort of sun, planet, us... How do we ever know yep. how close to the sun it is? Do you want to tackle that, Trish, or do you want me to whack it? I don't actually know very much about yeah. that. I, I know it's very complicated because I was looking mm. at equations because you've got to – the habitable zone is all dependent on not only just the star but the planet itself. Yep. So what the planet's made out, but, of course, you know how hot, how big the star is. So mm-hmm. it's complex just working out the parameters – of where the Goldilocks zone yeah. would be in the first but, place. But the things that we do know, we do know aspects of when, when you can determine orbital rotation and the position of that and so forth, you can pull out these various parameters. So you actually, there's, there's X unknowns and there's X knowns when you make these measurements. There's a few things we can't tell, but we can usually make estimations as to if it's this close to the star and it goes around this fast, what its likely size will be, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, you're not going to, for example, have a very small star with a huge exoplanet that, you know, dwarfs the star. I mean, there are parameters that are there. You're also not going to... You typically won't have a really large planet really close to the star without significantly affecting the star's position. So you can you can work out all of those things, add them all together and make guesses, pretty good guesses, actually, as to what these things will be. Gosh, but, it's um, all complicated. A lot of maths. Yeah, it's a lot of maths. So there we go. Well, cool stuff. So And Kepler's still going. I yeah, think yeah. I think it looks at something like 100,000 stars continually. Yeah, I think it's actually detected a thousand exoplanets all by itself, yeah. which is pretty impressive because yeah. I think we've only... Well, only detected something like 2,000, but mm. Kepler's been there not for that long of a time. So Yeah. The thing I love about this is that we've gone, I remember on this show some 15 years ago, thinking that we were probably the unusual solar system because we had all these planets. And now the mindset has completely shifted to this is the norm. They're everywhere. In fact, it's quite unusual to find stars without planets. So, yeah. Reminds me of uh, Bangladeshi people when I came here. I thought I was the only one, and then all of a sudden, <laughs> 10 years later, I was swamped by him. Is that right? I don't know. I can't tell the difference. No, I just see people. I can't, I can't tell. I don't see yeah. colour. No colour no. for me. No colour? No. You need to see an optometrist. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> it's important. 
You're like a you're like a dog. <laughs> well, you know, optically speaking. Um, we're going to take a short break, folks, before uh, the A words dropped again by Trish, and uh, give you some music to to listen to. We'll be back in just a few moments with another piece of science genius. Three triple R. There you go. Now, uh, during the break, folks, uh, Sakib tried to tell me that the Red Dwarf Star was just a TV program. A good good TV program. A good TV. But no, sir, it's a star classification. All right, we're even then. We're even? Yep. Uh, And no, it's not a shark. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) You're going to tell us about, uh, because we've got this huge population, we're going to geoengineer the planet? That's right. I mean, this wouldn't be a climate show, oh, a science show in 2016 without some sort of spiel about climate change. So that's what I'm going to talk about. Specifically, this uh, proposed set of um, ideas, I suppose, to possibly not only deal with the effects of climate change, but maybe even reverse them. So this is something that's incredibly controversial in the uh, scientific community. Its proponents mm. reckon it's the uh, golden or the silver bullet that'll kill climate change, and its detractors reckon it's it's not. It's pretty much the opposite. Yeah, yeah, I I know you're very passionate about this. I'm in the nuts category. Yeah, I think it's nuts. Well, well, let's let's go through it. Let's go through it. Let's go through it, yeah. But what I'm talking about here is something called geoengineering. Geoengineering is basically a blanket term for a range of proposals, which are basically any large-scale changes to our climate system with an intention to actually have some sort of effect. In this case, our effect is the reversal of the increased temperatures or a lowering of carbon dioxide concentrations Mm. in the atmosphere, things like that. Um, Like I said, it's a blanket term, so it's not one specific thing that's been proposed. It's actually a range of ideas. But all of these ideas, and there are many of them, they can all be split up into two broad categories. And these categories are, are basically named on what they're actually dealing with, which climate system they're dealing with. So the first category category is called carbon dioxide removal, and it's pretty self-explanatory. All you have to do is just try and remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, physically try and remove it. The idea here is that carbon dioxide is a greenhouse gas, right? Mm -hmm. So if you get less uh, or a lower concentration of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, you've got uh, a lessened greenhouse effect and therefore um, lower temperatures. Uh, you also want to remove it from the ocean as well because carbon dioxide in the ocean actually contributes to something called ocean acidification, which is mm. where, um, through a chemical process, carbon dioxide leads to seawater becoming more and more acidic. That's really harmful towards uh, sea life with shells because their shells, which are made of a, a compound called calcium carbonate or silicon carbonate, uh, they, are, they actually literally dissolve in an acidic environment. So, And often these animals are really important to the food chain, so screwing with them really stuffs up a lot of other animals mm. uh, as mm. well. So these uh, techniques are a bit troublesome because... You know, how do you physically remove a gas that's all around you? Um, uh, so that's one of the main criticisms about it. But the other technique, the other group of techniques, uh, they're my favourite. They're called solar radiation management techniques, and they sometimes they're just batshit insane. Honestly, basically, <laughs> these ones... You needed to give us a list. <laughs> <laughs> these, got one. these techniques, are, like their name would suggest, they try to deal with the solar radiation that comes into the planet. Obviously, most of our heat, uh, the overwhelming majority of our heat comes from the sun through solar radiation beating down on our planet. The idea here is if we reflect more of it away, then we're getting less heat staying on the planet. Obviously, we get a uh, lower temperature. So what, just set up a bunch of giant mirrors? Literally what I was going to say. You're that's, kidding that's me. That's why it's my favourite. Some <laughs> nut job probably thought, hey, you know what? How about this, you guys, after, you know, smoking something? <laughs> you thought, hey, let's just install 
a bunch of giant mirrors in space and then we can reflect sunlight away and no one really takes it seriously but oh, come on that's pretty much awesome as awesome as science is going to get right <laughs> there are more down-to-earth proposals as well literally more down-to-earth <laughs> proposals things like um uh painting our roofs white to act as again mirrors or spraying aerosols in the atmosphere to again act as some sort of reflective mm. materials we tried that we did um, we did that yeah, there's a lot of issues with that. It didn't I mean, go mm. too well, huh? Mm. Well, it's interesting actually because you can you can see the if you plot the aerosols and pollutants in the world, you can see minor changes to to temperature gradients as a result of that. But they don't they don't hold a candle to the effect of CO two more broadly. Exactly mm. right, um, and then. One of the issues with that is that uh, you've got to keep applying this or else you mm. know, the effect disappears pretty much straight away. Well, that's an artificial way of simulating uh, volcanic eruptions. The particles that are emitted from volcanoes also have a similar effect, mm. obviously. Well, I mean, those are technically aerosols. I mean, any particle yep. is really an aerosol, isn't that right? Yeah. So uh, that's why they do have cooling effects. So I should spray my hairspray into the sky. Yeah, do it for science, Trish. Yeah, do I it will. for the environment. <laughs> um, <laughs> But, uh, We're not officially endorsing this, by the way, people. Please don't just oh, go spray. yourself, mate. Go nuts. Um, but, yeah, so these problems, these radiation techniques, a lot of them have problems because they're not really dealing with CO2. I mean, yeah, sure, you're making the Earth cooler mm. provided that they work, which, again, is tentative. Um, but if they do work, you're not doing anything to get rid of the CO2 in the atmosphere or the ocean. So you might think, well, all right, fine, we'll go with the... Uh, carbon dioxide removal techniques. You have a lot of problems there as well. One of the carbon dioxide removal techniques that has the most traction in the scientific community is something called iron fertilisation, which basically involves us spraying bunch, a lot of iron particles into the ocean with the idea being that these microscopic organisms called phytoplankton actually use this iron to uh, reproduce and to grow. Now, the idea here is that these phytoplankton, these microscopic organisms, actually have shells of that uh, calcium carbonate that I mentioned earlier. Now, you might listen to calcium carbonate, the phrase calcium carbonate, and think, well, hold on, that sounds like it's got carbon in it, right? It does. And where does that carbon come from when these animals grow their shells? Carbon dioxide, right? So the idea here is that if you promote a lot of um, calcium carbonate uh, growth in their skeletons, you obviously, you're taking that carbon out. And then when these animals die, they sink to the bottom of the ocean, taking that carbon with it. That might sound all well and good, but hold on a second. Why are we creating, what would happen if we were to create these massive phytoplankton blooms? I mean, these ocean ecosystems are already fragile enough as is, and would we be screwing with massive amounts of numbers of food webs by mm. essentially completely imbalancing it on one side by increasing the populations of these one specific organisms? So there are a lot of problems. This is, in fact, part of the reason why um, geoengineering is so incredibly uh, controversial among scientists. I mean, while I've been here, Shane has been getting progressively redder and redder and... <laughs> I think he's about to get physically aggressive with me after well, the show. No, no, no. I, just, I, was, I was trying to think of a good analogy of this, and I think it's, it's like the game Kaplunk. But you're halfway through, and then you decide just to start randomly pulling sticks out. <laughs> you know, and and you know, if a marble falls, the earth's screwed. Right? Yeah. I mean, it's, sort of, it's, it's one of those things where in a, in a multi-parameter, very complex environment, if you try and pull one string and expect to resolve issues – it's it's somewhat morally indefensible. I think that's a lot of the issues I have with this type of work is that it's morally indefensible because you're dealing with it's that old old adage of you know everyone urinates in the pool and as long as we put enough chlorine in there. 
we'll be okay. Well, well, actually, no. That's because sooner or later, you've got so much chlorine in the pool that you don't want to get in. So that's kind of where this stuff, to me, leads. I think it's the the CO two removal technology. I think some of that's interesting because that is a that's more a going after the problem directly. I mean, that is the problem. So going after that more directly, I think, is of of interest. Um, it's interesting that that fits in. I know it does fit in the geoengineering category, but it's, it's interesting. It mm. does, but the problem there is uh, is that how do you get rid of CO two in the atmosphere? I mean, mm. it's so incredibly pervasive in yeah. everywhere that it's pretty hard to get rid of. And plus, sometimes the uh, costs of running this operation, should we go through with it to get any sort of achievable, you know, sort of meaningful mm. result in terms of temperature drops are just so high that they're probably not worth it. And CO2 is not the only greenhouse gas. In fact, it's a relatively weak one. Exactly. On, you know, relative to others. So. Methane. You've got to go veg, mm. right? Yeah, right. go veg. Yeah. 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 I, look. Are we I, pushing an agenda all of a sudden? I don't I mean, know. I'm just thinking about it, you know, but it's, uh, you know, I've been trying to reduce some of the, the heavier meats from my diet just I, I i'm one of these people i don't do well on on a non-meat diet i've tried it, it doesn't it, i get ill um supplements don't help so but i'm trying to reduce it as much as possible yes Fish. i became vegetarian then i was iron deficient yeah, <laughs> so i'm one of those people and you yeah. can, i mean you can compensate for that but um i think i, I think if everyone reduced a lot i mean not you don't push everyone to one extreme mm. but work on reducing as much as possible for as many people that will have a big impact on things mm. yeah Amy, you want to say something? Yeah, no, I'm just saying, you know, even if you cut down a couple of days, instead of having beef every single dinner, you know, have chicken every once in a while. Yeah, who have beef? a veggie meal a couple of times. Yeah, who can afford week? beef? Jesus, what are you, <laughs> That's <alien> true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's all good. Well, it sounds, I mean, there's a lot to be done, but um, I, I agree chucking mirrors up in space is probably not the way to do it. And uh, I think there was, a, there was ideas of spraying sulfur particles into oh, the atmosphere. Or, yeah. I mean, people come up with some crazy stuff in this. It's, it's scary, but unfortunately, we're out of time. So thank you, uh, Sakib. It's interesting stuff, and um, we'll keep watching this space because no doubt there'll be more crazy schemes coming out over no the worries. over the time. Now, uh, Jenny, I think um, I got a text from Lauren before, and um, she's repealed her pay request and is happy to come back because these well, guys have done such a good job. That's because she got so nervous because she heard how brilliant these guys were. She's realised she's going to be out of a job soon. Yeah. So I think she'll, I think the whole team is going to come back however so, you want them to, really. Amy, Josh, Trish and <coughs> Sakib, thank you very much for coming in and helping us out today. It's been a pleasure having you in the studio. Thanks for having us on. Thank you. Great to be here. Jen, just a, a quick word on your course. So these guys are all Masters of Science students at the University of Melbourne who've chosen to study science communication with me and get to do all sorts of exciting things like, you know, learning to talk and write about their own research as well as come and talk about things that they've never researched at all. So that was the deal today. Everyone who's listening, these guys were not allowed to talk about anything in mm. any way similar to their own research. And I think they've done a brilliant job. Yeah. They very proud. Been. We're very proud of them. Um, just goes to show with some good training, anyone can communicate science effectively. Absolutely. And in fact, it would be nice if a lot more scientists had good science communication training, um, yep. especially in key areas like vaccinations and stem cell research and Oh, I could go on for a while, but we have we to hand over to the team for me. Isn't it lucky there's no time uh, left? We're out of time because otherwise <laughs> I could go on. Um, big thank you to Liv for doing our Twitter feed and uh, Jen for bringing in your students. We'll be back to the normal team next week. I think Lauren's uh, learned her lesson. I'm Dr Shane. Until next week, have a great Sunday. Remember, science is everywhere and we'll chat to you in seven days. You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.